yeah it was always like um a family hobby um my dad he grew up doing it it was kind of his mode of transport um mm. and then unfortunately he got a car and that that ended that so he uh just got that <laughs> Welcome to Life Behind Bars, the amateur cycling podcast that stops for coffee and a pastel donata with pro peloton opinion. Joining me, without judgment, the rompole of the Bailey to my Vincenzo Nibali. David <laughs> Quainter. You're very bad at me. <laughs> it's dreadful. <laughs> oh, <what's> this? Steve? <laughs> I've been to the year 3000 and nothing has changed, but it's all underwater. They live underwater. And your great, great, great granddaughter. Steve, we can, we can drop busted lyrics in when I've introduced <laughs> you. The Simon Cowell, because I couldn't think of any other judges, <laughs> to my Simon Geshka, Stephen Balby. Simon yeah, Geshka, really. That, um, I've got Simon Geshka's beard. He, he wants it back. Um, Have you got so Simon anyway. Cowell's gut, though? Because you haven't been training. No, uh, I want to finish my busted point. I think that I've, <laughs> I've been singing that to myself this week as yeah. well as fretting about not having trained. Mm. And I think that some things are so bad, they do genuinely circle around to good. And I think that that Nibali... Um, Ron Paul of the Bailey. Bailey. <laughs> of the Bailey. Ron Paul um, of the Nibali. <laughs> stand the test of time in that regard. I see. So, that, my, my congratulations. That busted track brings up two two issues for me. One is if it's only his great 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 granddaughter in the yes, years. Everyone says this. It doesn't make any sense. I was actually give birth about this very week, late this week, and I was thinking, how could they have changed that to make that sense? And they could have just fitted in a lot more great 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 great. Like, okay, like, anyway, what have we all been doing this week? <laughs> We're working out how they can. Well, not, not that. What else have we been doing this week? How has your not training been going, Stephen? Uh, pretty successfully, sadly. sadly. Almost completely successfully. You two went on a ride um, to somewhere in the UK and you didn't invite me. And I assume that was because you were encouraging me not to train or maybe it's because I smell. We rode down to Sunny Tunny, mate, Tunbridge Wells. Yeah, I just didn't, I didn't get that invite. I mean, I must have, must have. Well, you're not training, so why would you want to join us? Well, that's a note. It's nice to be offered, isn't it? To <laughs> <laughs> Who else is uh, from Tunbridge Wells, by the way? Ah, that's a very good. That's a seamless link into uh, the theme of this today's episode, really. Um, do you want to go on that one? Yeah, oh, sure, I'd love to. Well, uh, Hannah Barnes, pleasingly, is mm. from Tunbridge Wells, or Tunbridge at least. Sorry, um, so not far, just down the road. Um, and the the Beryl Burton to my Warburton's tea case. Nice, <laughs> thank you, uh, Hannah Alton. Um, Hannah has uh, spent a bit of time with Hannah Barnes, so all the, all the Hannahs have got together. Yeah. Um, John Hannah couldn't make it, but, but Hannah <laughs> Hannah Barnes um, take, has taken the time to um, to have a chat with with our Hannah. Um, they talked about one of the things they talked about. We'll come on to this in a second. Actually, we'll play the interview. Um, one of the things they talked about was getting into cycling in the first place um, and how 
um, young women and girls can get into cycling. And we should probably caveat this with the, the fact that we're three um, reasonably privileged white blokes. Yes. Fast, fast approaching our 40s. Well, it starts with TV coverage and it starts with, it's, 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 the, it's the, the line, the, the classic line, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. Um, so it's, the, the point of that is seeing your, your heroes on the screen. You know, we've, we've been lucky enough to be inspired by um, all sorts of people across different sports that we can identify with. Um, and that's not, so, not necessarily so readily available with women's cycling. Um, they just don't, they just do not get the TV coverage that um, the, the platform that, uh, that the sport requires and deserves. Um, as in, you know, an equal platform to, to the, men's, the men's peloton. I think that there are many issues around this where we are not really able to talk about because it's so loaded. From my point of view, I'm not afraid of, of laying out both sides of it. I think ultimately, um, and this is something I'm going to put to um, my friend Donna later on when I speak to her, um, there are a couple of issues. Either you can say, look, let's just invest in the sport and uh, the audience will come. Or it won't because ultimately all sport below the top tier of men's sport in, in terms of endurance simply because of genetics and body makeup is less fast, um, less ultimately... Um, well, again, there's no way to finish it off. It's a loaded question. However... There is still the case. It is the truth, and I don't think we have to shy away from it, which is that a lot of people won't want to watch um, women cycling as much as men cycling in the same way that they wouldn't necessarily want to watch the men's under 23 when they can watch the seniors because you want to watch the fastest and the best. That's why we like sport. Yeah, Um, but then the counter to that is that women might want to watch women at the top of their sport. That is that is the counter, and, we, and that is the question. We don't know the answer. We don't know whether the audience would grow. Of course it would. Would it grow to levels to justify putting on a three-week Tour de France? We don't know. The ASO currently's position is that they say it's not logistically possible. David, I know that you disagree with that. You think that they can manage to put a women's Tour de France on the day before yeah um the aso has come out and said we can't do that and the money isn't there so our hands are tight um yeah i I think it's just i think it's financial not logistical well the option for that as i've advocated in the past is to do like the wta has done in tennis which is that they in the in the 60s and in the area of you know sexism and billy jean king versus that guy that she beat um who remembers his name? Well, we no one. Okay, fine. Um, that guy that she beat, um, and and off the back of that, um, they decided that they were going to ultimately do the sport for themselves. They can they separated themselves from the men's tour, the ATP. They had their own events. They promoted their own events. They only came together four times during the year at Grand Slams, and as a consequence, Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs. There you go. Huh. Um, as a consequence, women's tennis is by far and away the most high-profile women's sport and the most lucrative. And and I would say that there's the smallest gap in terms of entertainment between 
their their sport and the men's sport. I don't think many people would begrudge watching, you know, given the choice, wouldn't strongly prefer the men's sport over the women's. Perhaps it's personality dependent. I don't know, but I think that's a very watchable sport. And some other sports we could mention, women's football has taken an enormous amount of time to develop and still isn't getting even a fraction of the audiences or the popularity of the men's sport. And there are reasons for that, which we're not going to go into. And it's not for us. So, to so let, let me just let me just uh, play with your logic there. So you would agree that women's tennis is watchable and is is, a, is a entertaining. Um, but if you would also, I'm sure, agree that if a very lowly ranked man played the world's number one woman, he would comfortably beat them. Well, you're referring to... No, I'm not referring to anything specifically. I'm just saying that if that's the case, then why is it, why is it therefore problematic to watch a slower cycle race? Well, it's not, and this, that, that's the point we don't know, isn't it? That is the point we don't know because uh, no one's putting it on. So I guess the, the answer there is that someone should, but I think that in the problem, ultimately, it comes around to the fact that as it stands, no one is. And therefore, you get a lot of women, understandably, who come out in frustration and saying that in the media that why isn't the ASO or why isn't the men in the UCI doing more to promote women's cycling and fair enough why why aren't they but equally they could be doing it themselves and that's my point of view which i am happy to spout and if anyone wants to tell me why i'm wrong and why i'm so, so uh, before, before we before we go fine. to um to actually hear uh, um, a woman's point of view on this which i think is important there is uh, the well, caveat certainly more important than ours yeah certainly way more important than ours. Uh, the caveat is that the person who set up the uh, WTA was uh, Billie Jean King who was one of the most high profile sports people full stop um, in the world even before that existed and so she had um, uh, a lot more backing than the most high profile women cyclists would right now um, uh, and that would be a very difficult thing to overcome. She was a phenomenon in her own right for th- doing things like, for example, having that tennis match with uh, Bobby Riggs, um, who actually, I think, also had a tennis match against someone when he had two dogs tied to his uh, legs because he was that sort of guy. Um, but should we go and uh, hear a, a woman's point of view on this rather than ours? Uh, yes, I've been speaking to Donna about these issues. Donna, you are a lawyer and a cycling fan and a cyclist. To varying extents, that's probably the right order in which to put things. So we've been talking about um, the conundrum of whether uh, someone should invest in women's cycling, invest in producing, actually laying on these races and paying a production firm to, you know, record them and show them, or whether the sport still needs to reach a point at which that investment is automatically justified. So essentially, should we subsidise it until the interest catches up or, or should we wait until the interest justifies it in the first place? It's a valid question and I can see why it would be tempting to lean towards participation or interest having to justify the extra cost. But I think on balance we are setting the women that add effects and the people that work in the sport, which could be men or women, an impossible task. Um, Firstly, what level do you set that at? Um, And how the hell do those people whose livelihoods 
depend on that, get some sort of comfort around what the achievable level is to be seen somehow as worthy of that extra investment and how they keep on putting in that amount of effort and their own resources into it on the verge of bankrupting themselves to be seen as justifying throwing a bit more coverage at that that way and then what do what do they get I suppose when they actually achieve that is it that that point that somebody whether it's the UCI or the individual race organizers sort of wave some sort of wand and go here you go women you now therefore have achieved equality just as many people we think are interested in your sport as the men's version of this sport we will now give you what we'll put a women's race on for every man's race that we organize or whatever it is I think it's well, as a, as a, as a corporate being yourself, how much do you think that the laws of supply and demand should apply to sport? I mean, in women's football, I suggest that the interest just isn't there to justify paying women footballers anything like as much as the men's. And the men's, you know, plenty of people would say that the men are paid far too much in any case, far too much. Mm-hmm. But the money is there because the interest is there and the sponsorship is there. And to essentially subsidise them to a degree that women's tennis players are subsidised for the sake of equality by the Grand Slams. There is equal pay and yet the revenue from sponsorship and audience figures isn't quite equal. I think the gap there is, is, is extremely less large than it is in most sports, however. But for women cyclists, on the basis of supply and demand and the fact that we do live in a, in a, in a free market and a meritocracy... Do they go into it feeling that you know they they're doing it to make a living or to become wealthy or 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 you know be set up or they do they go into it because they love riding their bike with no expectation? Well, hopefully the latter in any case, um, but there's probably a difference between yes, okay, you've got the extreme, very successful athletes in any given sport, and in certain sports. Those people at the top of their sports, football's a good example, they get paid an extreme amount. Um, I think, although obviously I can't speak to this accurately, I would imagine that most women participating in cycling as their job, as their careers, would um, be wanting a decent living wage. I suspect they wouldn't tell you that, you know, we want to be... You know, shooting right to the top of the tree generally initially but come on guys we've got to get the sport sustainable to a level where we're at least getting some sort of wage that helps us maintain our participation in the sport throughout the year so for example in the top tier of women's cycling you still got people who are having to fund their own way around the races they literally just get the bikes kicked maybe some team support but they're having to arrange their own so in a in a sport where on the men's side oftentimes the business board in cycling is obviously very sponsorship focused you can't charge for entry like you can in most sports the men's sport is not assured of its future in any respect we have many teams who struggle to find sponsorship uh, year on year and go out of business because they can't so the question is 
but clearly the women's sport requires more money to grow so where can the money come from i think that's an important point and it's something that has to be taken into consideration because it sort of frames the argument along the lines that if I suppose it's running from the argument that you're going to ask sponsors or people that are already involved in the sponsorship of cycling to then take some of that pool of cash or whatever it is that they're currently allocating to supporting men's cycling and saying that you have to give it to women's cycling at the same time. I don't think that's necessarily the way it has to go. And I think putting that sort of condition on sponsors or whoever's supporting men's cycling already is not gonna work, at least in the short term. I mean, some some do it. There are some teams out there that have a men's wing and a women's wing, and um, they have some crossover in sponsorship. <clears throat> um, but I think you're right that it's not going to be a winning strategy trying to force team sponsors into providing for both. So they'll therefore have to be um, new sponsors brought in, either ones that are prepared to support both sides or are prepared to support women's And do you have to find sponsors at this stage who are willing to invest right now on the basis of they're not going to get a massive return on investment straight away, but having to do it with a long-term view so that their money will help grow the sport and they'll be a pioneer in that respect? How do you convince a sponsor to do it on that basis? Um, I think to make significant progress in that area, I suspect, um, it will have to go hand in hand with some sort of um, messaging or agreement on the part of the UCI and or some race organisers to make a commitment in terms of the television coverage that they're going to give. I think you probably need a lucky break in as much as when Sky invested in a cycling team. It wasn't as much that they felt they could. it was a sensible business decision. It was that James Murdoch was a huge cycling fan and wanted to do it on a personal level and championed it. But I'm sure there's many people who would, you know, want to do that um, in a similar vein in women's cycling. Yeah, and Dave Brailsford seems to be particularly good at seeking out those sorts of people. I mean... People can say what they want about him, but that man is a tactician. He knows the sport inside out and he knows the sport as a business inside out. So what would you say to people who criticise him for not doing more to, you know, start a women's, like a Sky women's team or an Ineos women's team? He strikes me as somebody who throws himself whole self into the job that he's doing. And for a while there, he was running the um, British team track programme, as well as Team Sky. And there was a point at which that became untenable, it seemed, and he had to hand over responsibility for the track team so that he could focus just on Sky. Um, I would imagine he would say that he doesn't have like any sensible person the capacity to manage two teams at the His same time. His job requires such focus that it's not something... It would be an interesting yeah. I mean, challenge for him pretty if he sponsored break, away. If yeah, he, yeah if, he, if he stepped away from... Indians. What I would love him to do after a period of time of him having run Sky and Ineos or achieved a certain milestone, say it's Froome getting that next 
Tour de France or whatever it might be, or if he completes a number of years, I would love it if he then dedicated the next part of his career to furthering women's cycling, particularly British women's cycling. His approach to the whole sport, which is just seems to be each year on year, miles ahead of what anybody else is doing, would be a very valuable asset. Okay, so that's actually segged quite neatly into my next question, which is whether it's Dave Bellsford, whether it's ASO, whether it's the UCI, this may seem like a, a sort of a bold question, even a, even a chauvinist question, but I hope you can see where it's coming from. Why aren't women doing it themselves? Billie Jean King, we've, we've discussed on the pod, started the WTA in the 60s, albeit she was um, very well known at the time. But they, she made a decision, her and her, you know, conf- and her confederates decided that they weren't going to rely on the men to do it for them because if they were going to rely on the men, it probably they were going to be waiting a long time. Mm-hmm. Nothing, to my mind, has demonstrated that men in the UCI or men in ASO care enough about women's, the future of women's cycling to put their reputations there, dedicate their careers to furthering it. And on that basis, and, you know... ASO have come out and said, look, we can't put on a women's Tour de France. It's not possible. And a lot of people have come back and said, well, it is. You're just not trying. Their will, the will there, is, it, it isn't there. Maybe it's because they're too focused on the men's sport. Maybe, maybe it's because they're sexist bastards. I don't know. Um, but why aren't the women just saying, sod you then, we'll do it ourselves? Why do they need to be affiliated to the UCI? Why don't they go off and find their own investment, start their own races, it doesn't, there doesn't need to be a women's Tour de France. The Tour de France is associated with 100 years of men's cycling. Why can't women start their own and build their own? As they are doing, there are many events that have, have been new in the last 10 years that are growing a following. Why can't one of them be the equivalent of a Tour de France? Okay, there's a hell of a lot to unpack there. So we'll try and do it step by step. Firstly, why aren't the women doing it for themselves? Um, I'd respond to this in sort of two different veins. One, of course, of course the question is, women, why don't you just do it for yourselves? Like every single other step into equality that has had to be taken since year dot. Yes, of course, women have to be the ones to make it happen. Like the vote. Women, you went out, you won the vote eventually. All it took was for a few people to die in the process, but that's okay. You did it and you persuaded us eventually. We gave you the vote. Well done. You can have it. So go go away into your cycling careers. You build it all for yourselves. Um, you know, maybe a few people will die in that process too, but, you know, you'll achieve equality at the end. Well done. Um, on a slightly more serious note, I know people like to present this whole issue of women seizing the initiative in the sport, being the ones to build it for themselves, as if you know that makes it a better way of achieving that equality. But I don't like to think of it that way. I like to think of it more as payback. 
It wouldn't be subsidising women's sport, giving people a leg up for men to step in and offer their support, their money, their advice, their infrastructure, whatever it might be. It is payback because it presupposes, saying otherwise, that the men's sport has been existing in some sort of vacuum outside the realm of women before now. Not the case that, you know, when all the cyclists say for today were young children getting into cycling, being ferried around by mothers, being fed by their mothers or other women in their lives, having their clothes washed, their kit washed, their bikes paid for and maintained, and then through in their, into their careers as these guys and their cycling is just shooting off into the stratosphere and the, the frooms and the wiggins of the world or whoever they may be, as if there hasn't then been a wife at home in both those cases and for lots of other male cyclists that we know and love. They're looking after the house, having their children, being there not only to maintain their life for them whilst they're away traveling for an enormous part of the year, but they're waiting for them when they come home as well, at which point they're still not much use because why stand when you can sit, why sit when you can lay down as the old adage goes. Um, so they ain't much use when they're there as well in terms of all that extra unpaid work that's there to be done to maintain a life for any couple or family or whatever it may be. And not only that, but there's plenty of women involved in the men's professional scene behind the scenes, you know, massaging people, cooking their food, to suggest that women are somehow not a crucial element of the men's sport as it has existed from year or just because they're not riding in it and they're maybe not the principles of the teams that exist as they do now is a complete fallacy. And so um, I don't see um, men supporting the growth and evolution of women's cycling as some sort of handout. I am here to tell you it is payback baby and it's a bitch and if you don't care for that you can ride off into the distance in the Pinarellos you rode in on with your components that have been designed perfectly for the male physique and physiology a kit that's been designed with a male default body in mind and we will make it happen for ourselves eventually but we deserve the support and it doesn't need to be as hard as it is is my line right powerful stuff uh i would come back immediately though with with two points i mean firstly it feels like then it's almost flipping on its head and saying look why should women why should men help out the women and then the question is really why why would they not because Mm -hmm. to grow women cycling is to grow cycling but on the on the other hand of that if you are a race organiser who hasn't got a lot of money or you're a television production firm who hasn't got a lot of money and simply can't afford to invest that money 
in an enterprise that isn't going to bring back returns enough to keep you going, what would you say to them to have them take a punt on women's cycling in the knowledge that ultimately the return isn't going to be there? Well, I think maybe you can start questioning with those people what what the basis is for saying that those returns aren't going to be as substantial as they would be airing the men's sport. Um, we can see in the UK scene quite clearly how the investment in the women's tour has made a massive difference. So there are examples there already for um, people to look at comparing the coverage against the male default coverage that was already there, seeing how that race has built up and how successful that has been um, to the point where it's now one of the one of the longest races in the calendar now, which is insane to think about because it's still only what four or five days. So that should be something like well, there, there is a there is an infamous rule there's an infamous rule on the track that um well that there's a four thousand meters men's um mm-hmm. pursuit and there's a three thousand meters for the women there's this is the individual pursuit on the track it is the right? individual this pursuit, is interesting because the, now the, defunct. the individual pursuit i think you're right is still at a lesser distance women compared to men on the track but it's not the case on the team pursuit and you remember this when they after this came in after London 2012 so at London 2012 Olympics the women were still racing three to a team over 3,000 meters Right, okay, so just because that's been and then straight after but why why was that the case in the first place because of the, I can only guess that the powers that be make the decision that well, they think that the women, women can't to possibly last as contact? long, don't have the capacity. But, but the, clearly the chauvinism, they do. the casual chauvinism, yeah. is off the scale. But it's of just of course. And then, but the interesting thing was, and this kind of goes a little bit back to um, what you were saying earlier about whether there has to be some sort of phased approach to things where things are built up built up in that event they just changed the rules and it came into effect i think overnight and yes there was a sort of there felt like there was sort of a transition period i mean the the british women were already very dominant in that event at the time there continued to be a period of time over which they i think they won virtually every race going now it's a much more competitive event um and i think it's so much more interesting being able to compare the sorts of times and progress that men make over exactly the same distance as women i mean we know it's going to be different we know the women are going to be on average slower it's just the way well it goes without saying that you know there was i don't think there was anyone who doubted that there was any reason why they couldn't do it in the first place but Mm -hmm. Moving in back to the road, the longest event mandated by the UCI, the limit for a road race is 10 days for the, for the women, which currently is the Giro Rosa. Um, why? Is it pure, is it physical or is it logistical? Um, I, maybe it's, 
it's both. I don't know the genesis of those particular rules. I mean, if they struggle to put on or get the interest from the broadcasters, for example, in that sort of race, the longer it goes on, um, then it will be limited in that part. But I'm sure part of it is sort of what they perceive as being hampered by women's physiology. Um, I mean, forget for years and years and years. It wasn't until, when was it? Was it in the 1980s that finally women were allowed to run the marathon? Competitively, yes, but I mean, there is likely is a, to be yeah. a similar sort of approach over the years that that, that you can see a, co- a, a pattern. I mean, athletics is a very mature sport, and women have been doing the same events as men for you know longer than anyone can remember, and that's completely accepted now. And yet, because that's been going for so long, so that makes the fact that women weren't allowed to do the four kilo pursuit even more inexplicable. I can understand that at the moment the 10 days limit or, you know, there's a limit on how long a stage can be. I think it's something like 160-odd kilometres is probably a bit practical in terms of money and time if they're doing it on the same day, for example, as a men's stage of the same race as there are, you know, there have been a number of classics this season. You can't, you know, there's only so much time in the day mm-hmm. and resources to police those routes. On the other hand, um, you know... Is there much point putting on a 270-kilometre women's race when you've only got 270 spectators by the roadside? Um, I remember the controversial La Course, which upset a lot of uh, women commentators because they saw it as, a, as an insulting sop. Um, and it was a very badly conceived race in the first place. And yet, um, two years ago, I believe, it came up with a very, very exciting finish where... I believe it was Van Vluten pipped Van der Bregen on the line. Was it the other way around? It was, it was Van Vluten, wasn't it? Right on the line. And yet the, the television coverage showed complete silence because as much as it was up the Col d'Isoire, there was no one there. And the next day, that there were 300,000 people on that mountain because it was the men's race. So you can have the television coverage in place but you, it seems moot if you can't get the people by the roadside. So what's happening there? Well, um, <clears throat> you, I think we're going to get stuck in a, a bit of a loop where, I mean, the classic we sort of see in terms of um, women's equality, but also as regards other sort of minority participation in the workplace or in sport is that this old adage that you can't be what you can't see. And so if people aren't writing about writing about these things, if they're not airing it, if they're not um, telling people what's happening, where it's happening, when it's likely to happen, if you haven't managed to build up any sort of consistency with an event, and that's a classic with La Course, right? That it's just sort of morphed from one thing to another. Um, over the years, not allowing for any sort of real momentum to build up, then you're not going to have a group of people invested in it that know where to be, when, who to look out for, um, you know, when something's on, how it's likely to unfold. There's no stories that have been built up and told yet. Hardly anybody's telling them. So you can't get people at a distance that well involved. You can see how it absolutely gets um, 
looked at differently in this country, in Britain, with regards to particular British riders that people have developed a sort of affinity for over the years. On the track, Laura Trott's a classic example, right? Laura Kenny, she is now. Um, people have been, people have seen her. They've, she's been given plenty of airtime in that sport alongside the men. They feel like they've sort of grown up with her and developed a relationship with her. They know sort of what she's about, what to expect of her. And I think people would rock up anywhere to watch her ride specifically. And we need to build the same sort of infrastructure and support in and around the women on the road. It's not easy. And I know it's, I've thought about this particular aspect a lot and think trying to think about what would help support women's road cycling in particular. And people look at, or sort of you think to look at any number of other sports, whether it's tennis, athletics or whatever it is. But track cycling is part of the cycling family and it works. You don't watch any track event without men's and women's events in the same programme, in the same schedule. The women's events are treated with the same respect as the men's. They're supported the same. You don't get people disappearing for the women's events. Um, if anything, there was a long period of time, again, just most of my experiences with British sport, but going back to that where the women's endurance team in particular was incredibly dominant and established and a number of those riders became household names. I think the issue with trying to draw analogies or lessons from the track though is obviously you've got a captive environment there where you can charge money for entry so that's obviously a difficulty with road cycling but on the plus side they've got at the Olympic level, mandated um, equality in the events that are put on. So, and I think this happened, I think this started with London 2012 as well. That was the first Olympics where you had to have exactly the same events made available for men and for women. Um, and that was the point at which I think the, was it the kilo got dropped which was sad, but it got dropped because um, they had to put on the same number of women's events as men's events. So yes, they should have dropped some of the swimming events, shouldn't they? Well, yeah, I would have taken that because I think the kilo's fun. But um, anyway, um, there is there are lessons there that can be learned nonetheless. And I think a way through this or part of this might be to at least get a group of protected events in the calendar where women get to take part as well as men. Similar to, I quite like the, the tennis comparison in a way. And you've got that system sort of happening there as well. You've got the Grand Slams and then there are the sort of the ATP tour and the 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 women's equivalent is LT WTA happening alongside it and some events some occasionally you get some crossover largely there's a men's tour happening and a women's tour happening different events different times they just move around the different blocks. Um, so why was it? Do you presumably you would 
if you could go back in time, you'd support. Given how it's turned out, they have a very successful business and a very successful business model. No one would go back and say, no, don't do that. So why they basically said, screw you to the men, we don't need you, we'll do it ourselves. So, you know, why again? Well, with the rest of it, because do you, in sort of saying that, um, you know, this whole story and mythology, not so much mythology, but whole history and everything is built up around the Tour de France, why would you want to take part in that? Because when you're growing up and watching this stuff on the TV or by the side of the road, um, girls and women are looking at those riders and wanting to know more and wanting to take part mm -hmm. as much as any boy or man here who is interested in the sport as well. And say to women and girls, um, here's this lovely shiny thing, but you don't get to take part, I think is just cruel and unnecessary. But and this comes back yes, to... you can go and build up other particular races, which would be great. But I think you'd be really hard pressed to find a female cyclist who would not bite your arm off to take part in the Tour de France. Isn't there an argument you made that for, you know, if you want to get involved in any sport it, for the love of it, because you love riding a bike, if you are a woman and you love riding a bike and you have the opportunity to go pro, why does that mean that you also have the right and you must inherit kind of the same, you know, rewards monetarily or, or you know, in terms of uh, prestige or fame or recognition as the men if the infrastructure around it doesn't yet exist? Well, I think you're making an awful lot of suppositions there that aren't necessarily true. I don't think anybody's saying... I mean, I might casually say, it's our right, it's our birthright, damn it. I don't think anybody's saying we have the right to participate in the manner in which you've described. Um, I mean, basic elements of equality in any society is that that should be where we end up so in in a sense yes it's deserved and it it is a right but i think most women would tell you that where they probably see things settling down is something in between what we've got now and a full calendar that's the same as the men's. I don't think that's what people are aiming for. There will be different, um, and I've heard this in other interviews, sort of different views coming out of the women's peloton in terms of, you know, where they want to get to in terms of the calendar. And you have to factor in as well that the size of the teams as well and the availability of riders that, there's got to be that sort of build up from the grassroots still that is still yet to happen so that we have enough people coming in to fill the teams in necessary numbers to make so many races happen. 
So there will have to be some sort of snowballing effect. But I think it's inevitable there will have to be some sort of leap at some point. Going back to what we sort of said near at the beginning, you can't set women this sort of completely arbitrary level of achievement or type of success, whether it's financial or it's viewing figures or, what it, or whatever it is, that's completely made up and not based on anything that will just set up women to fail. So at some point, there needs to be a leap of faith of some sorts involved from people to just put women in the spotlight and show the girls that are, you know, five, six years old at the moment who barely get to see a female cyclist on television unless it's in a velodrome, um, what they can be and where they can get to. And I think part of it might be putting... You've, I think you're going to have to have some races where women and men are racing through the same areas on the same day. If people are prepared to go and stand on a mountain for a few hours for the men's peloton rolling through, you know, have the women's peloton coming through a bit earlier and in the day. This, these things are not beyond the wit of an, you know, the whole population. They're beyond not, the wit of a number of, of number of men, but they're not beyond the wit of some of the smarter ones and certainly not... So women who dedicated themselves to the sport. So, to draw to draw this to a close, I mean, I hope we'll discuss um, these issues and we'll come back to them in in future shows. Um, if you were in charge of women's sport for a three year period, what three steps would you, as as reductive as that is, what three steps would you take to get the get the sport in a better position on the way to forward progress? at the end of those three years? I think I would absolutely take that on. If anyone is prepared to give me that job, I'm saying this within the walls of my current employer, so I hope no one's listening, but would totally take that job. Um, it would be restructuring the programme with the input of the race organisers to get a protected race calendar. I would absolutely do that. Um, I would... I think you'd have to have some sort of team or riders, commission, some sort of group of people on the, the administrative side at the top of the sport with the feed-in of the people that are working in the teams at the moment alongside savvy business advisors to seek out where the sponsorship opportunities are with people who haven't been sponsoring um, the sport previously and figured out figure out where the um, untapped resources and that will require a network to be built up around that. Um, but there is a whole industry there that specializes in this stuff and somebody has to make the connection between those people that do it for a living mm. and making it happen for the women's teams that would otherwise struggle in that area because they just don't have the resource to 
make it happen. It, it can't be that, you know, sort of every single year people have to go through this whole rigmarole. We see it at the, you know, at an end of the men's sport as well. Um, somebody somewhere needs to be given the funding to advise these teams properly on how they get the investment, how they maintain it, how they find the best sponsors for the job and still keep their sanity because the kids can end up an absolute shambles amongst all of that but that's just a personal bugbear of mine okay and then on to the third thing um which is a whole topic in and of itself but obviously getting girls into cycling in the first place and focusing on grassroots participation, girls not dropping out. It's a wider problem than, than cycling, but cycling shares in that problem as much as Yes, yeah, so how to get girls does. into sport, but keep them into sport in their teenage years, which is obviously a perennial problem. Yeah, it's a classic, and working in conjunction with, probably working in conjunction with schools more and curriculum in order to support that. Um, well, I think any woman would tell you the sort of experience you went through as a girl going through all stages of school and how that then support participation in sport generally. Um, That's a can of worms. It's not a can of worms, it's a large subject that absolutely. I would love to talk to you about more in the future and get your perspective and also your perspective on how you got into cycling and uh, how you found it since and the, ba- the barriers you've encountered and the help you've had to sort of break some of them down, the ones that you haven't yet broken down, perhaps. Um, No. Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you and the male default Pinarello you rode in on today. Or what was it, a Scott or a... I just walked here and I just walked here in my shoes, my sensible shoes. Canyon or... So you have a Scott, which I haven't ridden this year. Um, But but yeah, we 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 it would be great to to get into more about those sort of things. But that's a quite wide subject. Um, I was going to ask you who you think is going to win the tour, but I think that that would undermine a lot of many ways a lot of things you've said said so far. I think not necessarily because I love the tour. Because the tour is the tour. It's not a men's event. Wow, it's quite. just a beautiful event. Um, wait, I think you could say it's both of those things. It doesn't make it any less intriguing from my perspective. I will be watching avidly. Some really interesting stuff there um, from Steve and Donna. Um, big thanks to Donna for taking the time. Steve, just give us a, a little bookend to this. Um, because, you know, there's, there's a lot that you spoke to Donna about that we haven't necessarily included in the interview that we've put on this podcast. I think that uh, the women's sport obviously does have a way to go, but um, I still think it lies with the people in charge of the sport to just get out there, get investment. Because I genuinely think there's loads of people who would want to invest in women's sport and, and go out and find it and stop saying to the UCI, who are not historically, and if they want to see me off the back of this, then go ahead. They're not historically super efficient. Or, or famously good organisers. They haven't run the sport historically as, as well as they could have. And the have. Women's World Cup and whatever has shown us that now is certainly the time for getting invested and involved in... Yes, no, cut them out of it 
go out into into private industry, find people with a lot of money, just as uh, Dave Brailsford did when he set up Sky, and get those people to invest in talks and convince that they're out there. I know it's easier said than done, but stop relying on a bunch of, you know, institutionalized white blokes in and just want to protect their lots. or FIFA yeah. and, and do it themselves because I think they'd be a lot better off and we won't be sitting here in 20 years having the same conversation. Um, Steve, should we go to, to interview number two? Do you, want to, do you want to tee this one up for us? So our Hannah has been talking to Hannah Barnes. Uh, Hannah Barnes is a multiple national champion in both time trial and the road. Uh, she rides for Canyon SRAM, who are the current team time trial world champions. And uh, she is the sister of Alice and a partner of Teo Gagan Hart from a human perspective. Uh, must must note um, that this interview was recorded just before the, the national championships a couple of weeks ago. Over to you, Hannah. So it is my pleasure to introduce Hannah Barnes, rider for World Tour Team Canyon SRAM, um, who's hopefully, are you catching a breather after the tour of Britain? How are you? <laughs> Did you get a rest? <laughs> um, yeah, a small rest, but it's, uh, I've got to keep ticking over really. I've got the national championships next week and then I go to the Giro d'Italia, uh, the women's Giro d'Italia after that. So yeah, not much time to rest, actually. So, like, just tell me you got a day. Did you get a day to lie down? <laughs> um, I got a day, but that day was spent travelling back back to my, well, back to Andorra for a few days. Um, but it was super nice because, yeah, I got to see Taylor, my boyfriend, for a few days and just hung out, yeah. Brilliant. Oh, that's good. That makes me happy. Um, so, uh, you, I'm just going to reel off some achievements of yours because they're very impressive uh you won the first five women's london nocturne crits you are three times winner of the national criterion championships national road champion in 2017 uh your jura rosa stage win in 2017 um gold team time trial in the world championships last year um they're very impressive palmares <laughs> um i just wondered which of those meant the most to you or was there a different podium that was the most important? Um, I'd say last year's team time trial world championships was uh, probably the the biggest not 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 the biggest achievement, but definitely the most emotional emotional one. Um, because I mean, I spent I've been on the team now for last year was my fourth year with them, so yeah, it's been a while, right? Yeah, yeah, it hasn't. We, we're just really close, and we we did a lot of preparation went into that into that day. And uh, yeah, just I think just the relief. Like <laughs> I've, I've never had emotion like that crossing the line before. And when you stand on a podium, you're always just on your own. Uh, even mm. though your mates have helped you to win that race, um, you never get to stand on the podium with them. So for all of us, all six of us, to win the podium together was, yeah, it was really special. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you know the moment you crossed the line that you'd got it? No, we actually... have to wait. All of us were talking after, and it, when you do a team time trial, it, it's probably the most painful discipline because you kind of... Your teammates are pushing you more than you you want to be pushed. It's, it just hurts so much. And I honestly crossed the line thinking, oh, it didn't hurt enough. Like, that didn't feel like we were fast. Um, 
but but we were up and we all just stood there. I think we stood there for six minutes. It felt like a lifetime. Oh but, my god! Um, <laughs> yeah, but just because we just practiced, just we just practiced it so much. So just the smoothness of it was like a lot of people think the team time trial is just the strongest riders, like the six strongest riders ride to the finish line. But we've found out those those ten days leading up to it that it's not it's not just about strength and power. It's about just how you execute execute it yeah and the amount of work that goes in beforehand the prep yeah yeah Yeah. um so uh asking a question on behalf of graham he wondered in between all of these um amazing elite level racing that you do do you ever get a chance to just ride your bike for fun like mountain biking or bmxing or brompton to the shops (laughs) Um, no i mean you do in November, November and December. I really yeah. enjoy like just those long base miles because we, we finished the season and then a lot of us, I mean, I had five weeks off last year. Um, at the end of the season, I didn't touch my bike for five weeks. Um, so then those those November and December months, it's just about riding your bike for long times with friends. So yeah, we get yeah. to do it then. But yeah, especially in May, June, and July, and August. It's uh, it's pretty much every ride, every bike ride counts. So let's make sure you do good rides and then recover, recover well. But I actually just thought about today. Um, my last race is in Bologna. Well, mm-hmm. my planned last race is in it can change is in Bologna, and I was thinking, oh, maybe it'd be cool to to ride from Bologna back to Girona, um, as like oh, my end of season. Because we we never, I always love to do an A to B, um, yeah. but it's really it's really difficult to fit it in. So, I did some riding around there uh, last summer. I never go anywhere. Um, it's absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful, isn't it? I don't know why I was surprised by this, but it was very hilly. <laughs> <laughs> I found that quite challenging. <laughs> but yeah, amazing place to end the season. Yeah. Nice. One of the things that I am really interested in is uh, the grassroots of cycling and how we can encourage more girls and young women to get involved with the sport um something that would be really useful to think about is how you got into cycling what made you enthusiastic about it to start with and who inspired you um you won your first major event when you were 15 I think um yeah so I think my first actual national race like the first time I pinned a number on my jersey was I think I was 10 actually um Wow. In Sunderland in Hetton Hawks, which is a really, really good little circuit. Um, but yeah, it was always like um, a family hobby. Um, my dad, he grew up doing it. It was kind of his mode of transport. Um, mm. And then unfortunately he got a car and that, that ended that. So he uh, just got that. <laughs> and, uh, Passed the love on to you. Yeah. And uh, then just when when we were born... I think he just took it up again, really. And most weekends where we were spent riding around the local reservoir or go to a pub, having a pub lunch and, and riding home again. Um, mm. So that was just that. And then we actually, um, my dad, something broke on his mountain bike. Um, so we went to a bike shop and um, Phil Coley Cycles in Milton Keynes. And there was a like a, just like a poster on their, their door saying, local youth races at the like the concert the Milton Keynes Bowl yeah so we just raced around there and uh, yeah I did that when I was 10 and everyone was like oh she's she's quite good 
(laughs) was that was it an eye-opening moment for you when you were like oh this is my thing no I think dad was like well let's let's try um so he drove us to Sunderland (laughs) (laughs) and dad's the world over (laughs) yeah yeah so me I started at 10 my sister was eight and my brother was six and that was pretty much it that was where it all started was there sibling rivalry involved as well not really, because we were we were spread out, so we never really raced each other. And then my sister, she actually started with the mountain biking. Right. Okay. She'd she'd always be off riding down some some mountain in the Alps or something, and I'd be racing around Holland. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then my brother just decided this is this is not my thing. So yeah, he I can't remember the last time he would have touched a bike actually. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, that's just that's kind of how it started and. I mean, at school, and all the awards, if you like end of year, this like the sporty one, it would always be me. I just, any sport, I'd do it. I was never at home after school. It was always doing netball or hockey. Or okay, so you, it wasn't just cycling for you then? It was sport no, in general was, to start with? Yeah, I think when I turned 17, I got, um, I went to the county hockey trials um, and got, got into the Northamptonshire hockey squad. Mm-hmm. And dad, then dad was, we were driving home and dad was like, you, you need, I think you kind of need to decide now what, what you want to do. Um, and yeah, and it was just cycling, cycling one. <laughs> <laughs> just on that, in that car journey on a split second decision. Yeah, pretty. I think it's just always, always been cycling really. It's just, yeah. And then just yeah. everything else was just keep me busy, try and keep me out of doing schoolwork, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what do you like? What do you think? What would you like to see in place now for girls coming up that you didn't have? Um, maybe it's just uh, <laughs> focus on you don't have to do so much schoolwork if you're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> um, way up. yeah, I mean, it's hard. A lot of people ask that. I think a lot of women, especially in, and girls, are scared of like riding on the open roads um, yeah. with cars. It's I mean, one of the main reasons I, I moved to Girona from Britain is just the car drivers just there. They just respect cyclists here a bit better and mm. they don't seem to be in so much of a rush to get from A to B. Um, so I think that's, but my mum, she started recently, she joined the Breeze Cycling Oh program. yeah, they've recently just, they just announced last week they've got a quarter of a million members now, right? Yeah, so my mum did that and she just, uh, there was really good groups and yeah, just uh, go to the cafe and back. And she did loads of. We live uh, near Pittsford Reservoir, so she mm-hmm. always take her mountain bike there. And and she she quite enjoyed just the just having no cars. Um, but for yeah. me, it was actually when I was younger, it was just the it's wearing lycra. I don't know. I just I just I just found it so embarrassing. Yep. To be wearing lycra, so I don't know. Um, now I'm a bit different. I mean, I've got to really. It's my job, so I'm in it, in it more than I'm out of it. But um, yeah, I mean, the, but... the thing is, it's practical. It's functional. It is how it is for a reason. Yeah. There are sort yeah. of pressures on thinking about how you look when you're a teenage girl. I guess that I don't know. I just kind of grew out of it. <laughs> yeah. I don't care yeah. anymore. But it is a yeah. big deal, isn't yeah. it, when you're younger? It, it is, and I, I used to really struggle with it. If we had to like quickly nip into the supermarket on the way home from a week a weekday race, I just would just be mortified if I saw anyone. <laughs> um, but now it's just I really don't even think about it. But I, I do, I can see that 
some girls wouldn't like that. But I have seen that the the, the latest fashion trend is like the shorts. I was so going to say it is definitely in fashion to wear yeah. cycling shorts right now. Yeah, <laughs> we can we can ride this wave. Um. So at, and also at the at the top end at the pro end, I think there's been some really good uh, improvements in women's cycling recently. Um. I was just reading the other week that um, the ECI have brought in new rules for 2020 about world tour status races having to have TV coverage, um, yeah. which I thought was a good thing to happen. And also that you're going to have equal minimum salaries for women and men by 2023. Um, another important thing. Um, have you, what, what kind of things of that trajectory have you noticed in the time that you've been pro? Have, has, have you noticed that there is more media coverage or have you noticed that the wages have gone up or the prize funds have gone up? Or Yeah, I mean, I think I started professionally uh, when it was a really good good time to. Um, I, I mean, I listened to some stories and I'm like, wow, it's, it has changed changed a lot. I mean, I've never, I've never really seen cycling as a way of making loads of money. It was kind of something I just love to do. Um, I'm lucky and fortunate enough to actually be in that really great position that I can make a living off it and live a pretty spoiled life, I think. Um, but I know a lot of people people can't do that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's definitely progressing. It's it's hard because it's still a, there's still a lot of negative comments about it, even though it's going upwards and like moving forwards. But I think definitely for us is just the tv coverage is so important because that's kind of where the the money's going to come from yeah and it needs somebody to take the first move doesn't it it needs the sponsors to say i'll put the money in without the coverage or it needs the tv people to say we'll provide the coverage without the like somebody needs to step forward and i think yeah. that is starting to happen now yeah um, um I think, yeah i think trek bikes and um box women just announced that they're going to follow do like a I'm not sure if it's like a live stream, but they're going to have some TV coverage of the Giro Rosa. Yes, um, yes, I read that. Because I, yeah, I couldn't even find a Twitter feed of it a couple of years ago. And yeah, now we're going to have actual TV. Yeah, for us, I mean, it's it's, it's a 10-day stage race. It's like our grand tour and yeah. it's impossible to follow. I mean, we do race alongside the Tour de France too. It starts like, I think, the same day as a tour. So it's always going to be competing. Um mm. Yeah, I mean, we just finished the Tour of Britain and that's just, to be able to watch it every evening for an hour is yeah. it's, it's so great. Even for us just to watch it and we actually use it to analyse. Oh God, I never thought of that. Not having footage yeah. of yourselves is a, yeah, to like, de- a detriment to well. your planning. Yeah, what we did well, what we didn't do well. Um, and also I, I kind of use it as a tool, like how do I look on the bike? Because you never see yourself. Like you do these bike fits and you yeah. do all these things but you never really see yourself on the bike yeah so I think it's I think it is really important um to be able to just use that it's, yeah it's a, like a resource really as well for us so are you will you you will be riding the Giro will you uh yeah so I do the yeah. nationals Thursday and then Sunday and then I fly Wednesday to Milan and then that starts Friday so uh-huh. yeah look at how it's how are you feeling about it yeah, I'm I'm good. It's kind of it's a love hate race for me actually. Um I always dread it. 
until I'm there and then I think oh it's great it's just like Italy great food and mm. and it's I think this this year looks great I mean we do the Gavier and quite a few exciting stages but I mean last year I was but we had uh we were doing the Donkalan which it's kind of that climb where you want to do it but you don't want to do it it's and brutal, uh, I crashed it? yeah like I crashed out and broke mm. my collarbone two days before it and I was like oh I so actually, while they were riding up the Zonkalan, I was under having surgery for the pin put on my shoulder, collarbone. But um, yeah, so this year I'm just looking forward to, to getting stuck in and doing some really cool, cool stages. Yeah. Um, well, on behalf of Life Behind Bars, I would like mm-hmm. to wish you and the rest of your teammates at Canyons Ram the best of luck. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. That's okay. Thanks, Anna. That was a really enjoyable interview, actually. Um, worth noting, then, as I said at the top of, of top of that, that um, the national championships have subsequently happened, and it was a uh, damn successful um, event for the Barnes sisters um, in general, particularly Alice. Yeah. So Hannah lost her national individual time trial title to her younger sister Alice, and Alice also was first in the road race, which is the first person to do the double since Emma Pooley. Same so she finished Alice Alice finished first in the time trial and the and the road race and Hannah finished third in the time trial and sixth in the road race. So a really successful week for them. Um now coming back to you for a second. Let's get let's get let's put Hannah Alton under the microscope. <laughs> How did you get into cycling as a as a as a sort of uh, side discussion? <laughs> Uh, well, it started when I was six and I was given a beautiful restored bicycle by my dad and immediately fell over sideways into a hedge because it didn't have stabilizers on it. Uh, felt very hard done by. And well, you grew up in Norfolk, didn't you? It. So it was pretty windy there. I, <laughs> I grew up on a suburban housing estate in Norfolk, so I don't think I can claim it was the weather's fault. Okay. Um, but I actually officially started cycling in London when I ran out of money when I was doing my postgraduate degree and had to still get from Peckham to Kensington every day. So I got my mum's old shopper out and was incredibly grumpy about it for about three and a half days and then accidentally realised that I was really enjoying it and had to entirely reconfigure my idea of myself and who I was. But I didn't really start taking it seriously for eight years uh it was just a means to get around so eight but years of commuting eight years of commuting. what what caused you then to start taking it seriously obvious question <laughs> uh i was unexpectedly widowed at 30 and it was a horrible shock um i was left a single mum of a four-year-old at the time mm-hmm. and i sort of tried drinking whiskey at night and it didn't work out too well those three weeks (laughs) were a bit rough Uh, but then I discovered that um, cycling was a really great thing to bury yourself in Uh, it's quite a perverse thing to choose when you have no childcare and very little money because it takes a lot of time and obviously is a total money pit Um, but it has been incredibly important for me and a wonderful thing to discover and well you've got around the uh, money pit aspects by building a lot of your own bikes haven't you yes Yes, I have done that. Uh, I My first proper road bike was, um, I, I was going to say a gift. It wasn't a gift because I did actually buy it, but I bought it for considerably less money than it was worth. But having 
hung out in the mechanics workshop and watched it, I thought, actually, I've built a motorbike before. Like, bicycles are not that hard. <laughs> I'll just watch some YouTube videos about limit screws and derailleurs, which I did. And when once you know your way around a bicycle, then borrowing, begging, stealing secondhand parts from friends and acquaintances and people you just randomly meet on the street becomes uh, quite an easy route to a unwieldy large bike collection and, and uh, how, how many how, what is your current collection numbered at? well i um i would like to point out that my son has several bicycles too they don't all belong to me but between us we have 12 uh <laughs> my, i wow. have a rule okay. i have a rule which is that they don't we don't have two of the same kind of bike we don't duplicate purpose so we've got road bikes we've got mountain bikes we've got bmx's uh we've got a tandem <laughs> We've got our vintage bikes. Uh, I think that accounts for all of them. A tandem that I believe you found um, for sale around the back of uh, around the back of a building, something. <laughs> yeah, it was just um, on the South Circular in my house. Uh, for sale, on... I should I should uh, I should stress not. Yeah, I didn't liberate it with my bolt cutters. Uh, yeah, it was for sale. It's very beautiful, sun. Um, branded bike from 1956 as far as I've been able to work out uh, and I have lovingly restored it to rat look so no one's going to steal it <laughs> um, but it is hilariously good fun once you get the hang of it and my now eight-year-old is an amazing stoker I've trained him well. Okay and, and, and your son's um, has, been, has been into BMX and he's just getting into road bikes now isn't he? Yeah, he's getting more conf confident on the road. I'm getting more confident shepherding him on the road. Um, so we're just starting to... You've not had any runs with the police then who've uh, banned him from cycling on a path in his career so far? <laughs> no, not yet, thankfully. Okay, uh, I'd like to crossed. see him try. I'd like to see him try. Um, and you've been getting into uh, track cycling recently, haven't you? Oh, you can't say that. I've done like two sessions. Um, I absolutely love it, but also find it completely terrifying. Um, I've not got much experience riding fixed um, fixed gear bikes, uh, so that took a little bit of getting used to. Um, I do almost all of my riding on my own. Um, I don't have the childcare or the time, you know, able to commit the time to be in a club. So suddenly having to ride three centimetres off the back of someone else's wheel, I just had visions of them sneezing and ten of us dying the whole time. <laughs> Well, this is obviously, you know, it's obviously a barrier that I'm, I'm sure, you know, David and, and Graham have, have, have yet to cross, really, and it's something that puts a lot of people off. But um, I suppose you, you've testified that you've sort of benefited from the, the kind of a lot of good advice and kind of patience from, from people in cycling, which isn't always the case or hasn't always been the case in cycling. Sometimes it has a reputation of being as having barriers to entry, but you, that's not been your experience, I take it. Um, no, I have, I've been very lucky in that quite a lot of my close friends are already cyclists and have been very generous with their time and their advice and their spare parts and their tools. Um, it, I've found, there's things that I have found difficult have been cultural ones in that uh, the couple of times I've gone out for rides with clubs the clubs I've ridden with haven't had a women's section. There have been no other women on the ride. And actually, they've all been men who are 30 years older than me and considerably wealthier. And I just couldn't think of anything to say. And that made it mm. quite a cringy experience, even though it was lovely to be out riding with people who knew roads that I didn't know. I couldn't bring myself to go back. I think there's just there has to be a wholesale cultural shift 
Um, so you, you think that at the moment <laughs> clubs still aren't catering enough for women and for for new for beginners, but specifically for women? Um, I don't want to make that sweeping statement because I know that actually Dulwich Paragon, which is my closest club, has a huge women's mm. group attached to it of all di- of lots of disciplines: road, track. Um, I think they even do cross. Uh, so I don't know, and I think that they have been work- doing quite a lot of work to grow that. Um, but certainly when I was growing up, it wasn't seen as a thing that girls did at all. Like it just That's didn't right. I mean, it wasn't radar. seen as a thing that anyone did, um, in, in the UK, it certainly wasn't, but no, uh, mountain biking was a big thing or well, riding mountain bikes around. We don't have many mountains in Norfolk, but a lot of boys did that, but it just never, it just never occurred to me that I could, that that was a thing that I could do. Okay, well, you know, we'll we'll, uh, we'll sort of chart chart your uh, f- continued forays in, into track over over this year, hopefully. To draw this episode to a close, then, um, in conclusion, I think that um, there's we've discussed some pros uh, as 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 far as the women's sport goes, and some concerns. Um, I would like to remind people that of all the sponsorship involved in sport last year, only 1% of it was diverted to women's sport. That in itself um, was up 47% from the year before. So while that is growth, it's certainly starting from a small base. So Hannah, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think we've got some pretty good reasons to be optimistic about the future of women's cycling specifically. Um, For example, um, the Cyclists Alliance exists now, which is a union for pro-women cyclists formed by current and ex-pros, for example, Iris Slappendell, Amanda Spratt, they were heavily involved, and it represents uh, the interests of women at pro level. Um, That includes things like medical care, maternity leave, standardised contracts, um, legal assistance. It's really important, and they're making headway. Also, the UCI are... Showing willing, they have committed to equal prize money for men and women's events by 2024, and they've also committed to an equal minimum salary for women and men by 2023. And they've mandated, obviously, that any new event that gets put on has to have at least 45 minutes of TV coverage. Free-to-air TV coverage, which is the important thing, because that's the way that people who are not already committed cycling fans will find their way into seeing the sport. So, yeah, and that means that a couple of the races next year, um, a couple of the spring classics, I can't remember which one, damn, uh, have actually lost their World Tour status for the Women's World Tour because they don't have the ability to provide that footage. Hopefully that will be a loss in the short term to become a positive in the long term. Well, then I'll let you uh, say goodbye as it's been that type of episode. (laughs) Yeah, Okay. so uh, it's goodbye from David, Graham, Stephen those blokes and me goodbye from Hannah and we'll see you all next time Salut.